You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. AutoNation, they put out some good numbers. Stock is up pretty substantially today. But here's something that um, talking about the car business, Matt. So I just want to come c- c- come along with us. The uh, they're talking. The CEO is talking about he expects light vehicle sales to be close to 15 million this year, up from 13.7 million Uh-oh. in 2022. Where's the 17 million number? Let's uh, let's get <laughs> Kevin Tynan on here. Kevin Tynan, he covers all the auto stuff, the car stuff, truck stuff uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. He is clearly an expert. So. Kevin, I look at the AutoNation numbers, good numbers, but the CEO is saying 15 million SAR. Is that it? Is that all you guys can do? Kevin, there's nothing, there's almost nothing that makes Paul angrier than not aiming for peak SAR. <laughs> Other than working from home, which makes him less angry now that he has a beach house. Yes. <laughs> Kevin, what do you got for I'm us? I feel like Kevin AutoNation. isn't there. Is Kevin yeah. not there? Am, am I here? Yes. You're here. <laughs> uh, all right. So here's what I thought was interesting about some of the AutoNation numbers was, you know, they talk about beware going forward, you know, chips not so much an issue, uh, uh, left some demand on the table in in 2022, so uh, automakers ramping up some production and, and prices are going to fall, uh, which is not what happened in the fourth quarter, right? It was, I think, the third consecutive record price or average uh, revenue per transaction for AutoNation specifically in the quarter, but but gross profit per vehicle, new and used, was compressed. And really, what that comes down to is the manufacturers seeing retailers getting over sticker from November 21 through November 22, and saying, "Well, obviously, we're not we're not charging enough at wholesale." So margins are compressing for AutoNation, which is where they kind of directed your eye during the call or during the release, yet prices are still very high. In fact, another record for them for this quarter. So, yeah, I mean, I think the industry or the automakers, the manufacturers, don't want to leave sales behind. So that means a little bit more production, which just comes along with with softer pricing. But we're not going back to, you know, 2018, 2019 pricing structures. I always thought, you know, in The Sopranos, when uh, Tony takes over that um, gambling addict's sports business <laughs> and he just squeezes him for every penny he got until yep. the guy's broke. I feel like 
the automakers are kind of doing that to the average consumer right now. The average monthly payment for a new car is $777. That's double what it was in late 2019 pre-pandemic. And now we hear uh, from the credit card companies that um, they're having problems meeting those payments. Mary Barra told us yesterday the Lower-end consumers are starting to miss uh, their auto payments. I mean, at some point, this is going to be a problem. A problem. It, the prices are just too high, Kevin. Yeah, and it's, and a lot of that is due to mix. Remember, you know, we we can go back to 2013, which was the last time in the U.S. truck and car mix was 50-50, and it hasn't been close since, right? So there's there's a part of that that is hey, if there is a finite amount of chips or production or our cost structure is is lean enough, we're just going to make the most profitable things. Uh, and along with that comes higher prices. So, you know, I don't know. There, There's very little opportunity to go back because the more affordable things just don't exist anymore, right? So I think that's where you get the automakers looking at it and saying, well, buy something certified pre-owned or pre-owned from your dealerships. We don't live in that $20,000 space anymore. And that's, you know, even used cars are twenty-five dollars to $30,000 now. So yeah, it's, it's certainly going to affect demand, but I think at different points in the supply, they don't care as much as they used to, right? Because your fixed cost structure is now rationalized to the point where you don't have to sell every possible thing at any possible price. And you can kind of hold out and say, no, we live in this fifty to $55,000 market. And I mean the volume brands that GM has or that Ford has or Toyota, you know, those are, those are moving up because their mix is so much richer. Hey, Kevin, you know, we had uh... – Mary Barra here yesterday at Bloomberg uh, talking to our print folks, our radio and TV folks, and boy, really aggressive commentary on their push into EVs. Give us your your, your latest feeling about kind of what we're going to hear from the Fords, from the GMs, and maybe what it means for the incumbents like Tesla. I got to say, from what I heard Mary tell us and what she told David Weston on uh, Bloomberg Television and radio, um, it seems like GM their EV business is a coiled spring that's just yeah, about yeah. to get set off. I mean, they want to make uh, and sell $50 billion worth of EVs, profitable $50 billion worth of EVs by 2025. That's just – that's like next year, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is it. And, and what was – you know, unit-wise was – I don't know. That's a million, dude. That's a million yeah, yeah. at fifty grand a piece. Right. It's a million in two years from forty thousand yep. last year, right? Yep. So forty four, yeah. So so the thing I see with that is right, it it's it's going to be if if it's possible, it's going to have to be a lot of the I don't know, thirty, thirty five thousand dollar vehicles. She said right? that yesterday. She said that. Right. I yeah. mean so so you have to be concerned about margin and profitability if that's what you're planning to do. Because essentially, right, if you look across at Ford, who talked about break-even on Mustang Mach-E going back, you know, several quarters, $50,000. Now, because of material costs, it's maybe $60,000. Well, how many $30,000 things do you want to sell, you know, if your cost to produce them is above that? You know, a million of them? That's... You know, that's that's just not how you usually run the business. So one or two things has to happen. Either you're going to give up a ton of profitability and margin to make that transition well, and, and hope you're rewarded with profitability, kind of the way 
you know, Tesla operated yeah, on profitable. Yeah, I was going to say, or valuation or market cap. Right, I mean, right, there sure. are a lot of people out there, Kevin, who were skeptical on Tesla for a long time. Right. And yet, that company was worth over a trillion dollars for a substantial period. Right. So maybe that's the trade, is that you say, well, we're going to give up some profitability or a lot of profitability to do one million units in the next two years, um, but we'll be rewarded in market cap. What are you driving these days, Kevin? Uh, it's still my V12. <laughs> Oh, no big deal. V12. I like it. I think the transition from internal combustion engine to EV is going to be a tough one. What's the V12? The, uh, it's like an SL65? It's a 600. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I don't see the I'll EVs be the last in, one. You're going to be the last one in your garage. All right, Kevin Tynan, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Kevin Tynan is the senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, working out of our lovely uh, Princeton office in Princeton, New, New Jersey, and he is a noted car geek of some magnitude. Uh, <laughs> I heard he bought his car based uh, he bought his house based on the garage yes exactly yeah. he said he went searching for garages his wife was searching for houses and they find, finally found one that kind of satisfied both you know success when you see it or you think you do the people in the spotlight athletes, actors, artists but what about the people behind the scenes you know the ones who make it all happen the lighting engineers the sideline photographers the caterers they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. get to these markets here. Omar Aguilar, he joins us. He's the CEO and CIO of Schwab Asset Management. Schwab, just to give you a sense of how big these guys are, Schwab, $755 billion in assets under manage, management, the third largest provider of index mutual funds, the fifth largest provider of ETFs. These guys are massive. But I'm not sure I want to go up to Omar at a cocktail party and initiate a discussion. Get this. He's got a PhD, statistics and decision sciences. Now, the good news is it's from Duke, but who gets a PhD in statistics and decisions? I science? loved statistics. Do you? Oh, that was brutal. I mean, I took one class, <laughs> and I quite enjoyed it. All right, good stuff. Omar, thanks so much uh, for joining us here. Boy, I think about all of the Swab clients all over this planet. Boy, I mean, what do you tell them after what was a brutal, brutal year in 2022, whether it was equities or fixed income? What do you, what do you tell them about 2023? Well, you know, thanks for having me and thanks for, um, you know, talking about the statistics. That's definitely <laughs> been, uh, you know, a big part of my life. Uh, and it's not as, as bad as you think once you get used and finds the, the good thing on it and how you can actually use that to help people. But, but you're right. You know, 2022 was probably one of the most difficult years for all investors and in particularly 
you know, when people look at their statements, uh, even in the worst possible uh, scenarios, you know, over the last, you know, 30 years when equity markets and risky assets uh, underperform, you know, everybody counted on the fact that they, A, you know, could have their bonds or their cash doing, you know, most of the, you know, saving. And in, in last year, there were only two asset classes that ended up having, you know, positive returns, cash and commodities and you know outside of those two asset classes the rest uh, ended up you know underperforming so so clearly just from the perspective of of clients that uh, had expectations of using you know fixed income as a, as a cushion for when when volatility in equities you know that obviously didn't work so what we talk clients you know is that these you know these tends to happen this is very rare there are very rare occasions where this happens and it happens usually because we had something that we didn't expect actually we'll probably say two things that didn't expect one is we just coming out of COVID, and in fact you know we're still in the process of coming out of COVID. and second we nobody expected to have a war that just you know ignite inflation pressures that made things really really hard um, so what we talk about now is what what happens from now on. And the good news is that there is more opportunities to invest and diversify now than what we had even, you know, just, you know, six to eight months ago. What do you uh, what do you do at Schwab Asset Management about the sort of newer or alternative asset classes that retail investors are just starting to dip their toes into? I mean, uh, ETFs are just gaining so much ground. I know SPY's 30, but it's still new-ish, as a wrapper at least. Um, uh, crypto has had a rough year, obviously, but it's a new asset class that some people are interested in. And then hedge funds did well last year. Private credit did well last year, but that's normally just set aside for sophisticated investors. So how do you deal with these things at Schwab? Well, great question. And, and yes, this happens uh, all the time. And we, we have had, you know, significant amount of interest, you know, and, and this, you know, happens in, in many cases. You know, you may recall not too long ago, the discussion about meme stocks and, you know, what people can use that information to invest and, you know, how they can use several information. The good news is that, you know, we attract a lot of investors to start inter being interested in investing. I think our challenge and our goal and mission continues to be to educate clients on how to think about the long term and what to think about the way to invest from the basic level of what are the fundamentals of what you try to achieve financially and investment wise for each one of your goals. And what that means is that areas like, you know, for example, you know, digital assets, any type of, of, of related information that is more supply and demand, that there is little in terms of fundamental, there is little in terms of uh, history, you know, they tend to just be an option for clients to start getting the, their interest in investing, but not necessarily to form the core of their long term strategy. We tend to just, you know, continue to educate clients to say, well, you know, the basic asset classes, the basic areas of investing for the long run as of today, you know, still consist on the basic cash fixed income equities. And yes, there will be other alternatives that are based on fundamentals that could actually help in the diversification process. So, Omar, when I think of Schwab, I just think it's just a huge, huge number of clients out there. Um, how do you attract new clients, younger clients? What's the Schwab way to get some of these uh, young folks to really think about investing for the long term? Yes, we, we have done, you know, quite a bit of work, Paul, on this where, you know, we, we start at the early stages of working with, with our current clients and let them know that it's actually, you know, good for, for, 
for their own families to just get invested in the clients, you know, whether it's investing in slices of stocks that they like and they own and create opportunities in areas that they can have, like, for example, investment themes and things where they can actually start putting, you know, information for their own families, for their own kids to just try to get early into the investment area and understand that it's, it's something that they need to balance risk and returns and think about, you know, holding and saving. And that's probably the key word, you know, continue to educate clients to save so that they can continue to form, you know, a nest, you know, as they go. The other piece that we actually try to have is we're here to help. You know, trying to work with a financial advisor, trying to work with somebody that has, you know, been in the business for a while and can guide them in what is the best way to use the resources is another big part. And the last thing we do is understand that we're all humans. You know, we do a lot of work in decision sciences and behavioral aspects so that we can understand, you know, when people emotions get high, especially in these periods of high uncertainty. And therefore, we try to educate people on what is the, what is sort of the utility function and the reaction function they can use in periods when things are not as clear. Omar, what are you expecting from the economy this year? We're getting some uh, more bad news on the consumer which seems to be that um, he or she is still spending a ton, but a lot of it's going on credit cards and delinquencies are rising. Yes, um, we expect a really bumpy ride. <laughs> we expect the economy going into a, a really, you know, um, uncertain times, you know, for the next three quarters. Uh, it's going to be a roller coaster. I, I can I can tell you that, you know, we're still in these you know, very uh, confusing set of level of indicators that we get every time that we need to get a, a new data point, you know, and of course, you know, the, the whole discussion between, you know, what will be the, the reaction from central banks and into their fight of inflation and how much of this inflation is as sticky as it looks like. Just the, the prints this year with CPI, PPI, suggesting that, you know, the long road to get the 2% target for the Fed is really going to be long and, bu- and bumpy. Um, you know, not too long ago, people were talking about still the rate cuts uh, because they thinking that the economy was going to recover quickly. Well, we are not even in a, you know, talking about recession anymore. We're talking about a potentially a re-engineering of the economy that may not even get into a landing. So, so the the strength and resilience of the economy, at least on the data that we have, suggests that it will take some more time for everything that the the Fed is manufacturing to actually play a role. And when that happens, then we can actually feel a little more, uh, you know, stable for actually make, you know, changes into our economic forecast. So putting that that motif all together, that backdrop all together, Omar, what's in 30 seconds, kind of what's your main communication point to your clients about 2023? Well, Tina is no longer in existence, Paul. That means that there's a lot of opportunities for people to actually invest. I think some of your earlier um, commentary was that related, if you actually think at a short term of the curve today in fixed income, it's probably giving you as much, you know, yield as you can get with earnings. And if you think about that, you know, the opportunity to just diversify between, you know, the short term, the long term and equities is probably the best we have had in a while. So this is a good opportunity for people to, you know, diversify their strategies between bonds and equities that we probably haven't had for at least 15 years. All right, Omar, really appreciate you taking the time to check in with us. Omar Aguilar, he's the CEO and CIO of Schwab uh, Asset Management. Uh, Talking about diversification, talking about the longer term investment parameters that you know, most investors you know, need to probably focus on. Um, we should have got his favorite 
professor from, from Duke. From Duke, yeah. We'll do that next time. I mean, the statistics and decision sciences. That sounds pretty heavy on the math. Dude, that sounds awesome to me. <laughs> I don't know. I was told there wouldn't be any math here. It's like so. game theory. I guess. I guess good there's stuff. some smart people down there at Duke. So, uh, good stuff. We had a story overnight that credit card debt for Americans has risen to almost a trillion dollars. I don't know if that means Americans are using credit cards more uh, or that prices are higher. There's a business oh, I've been point. looking into for a few weeks now called Imprint. And as far as I can understand, what they do is to try and help other companies with credit card issuance, with rewards programs, loyalty programs, that kind of thing. I've managed to get the CEO in here in our studio in New York City. Dara Murphy joins us. He's also the founder of the business. So great to have you here, Dara. Tell us, first of all, what Imprint does. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Imprint uh, was started about two and a half years ago. And the goal was to compete with banks that help America's great brands launch credit cards. Co-branded credit cards have been a thing for 30 years in the America. You can you get a great Delta card if you work with Amex. But there's a lot of great brands out there that the, the biggest banks, the bulge bracket banks, won't work with. And we saw an opportunity to go help those those great brands, whether they're hotel companies that have been around for 30 years, grocery stores or some of our clients that have been around for 100 years. Our goal is to help them issue credit cards. And so what we do when we talk to them is, we give them a pitch that we're like a bank plus a technology company, and you get everything from us that you would get from Barclays, for example, which is a big co-branded credit card business. But in addition, you get an experience that a great brand can be proud of. So what what is um, – let's take the grocery store, let's for instance. What is uh, the benefit to them? Is it, I guess, loyalty, right? If yep. you have a branded credit card, you must really like that business. But do, do consumers get a discount? Are they encouraged to shop there more often? Are there – other programs? Yeah. How does it work? It should be a virtuous cycle, right? So the brand should get a stickier customer that comes back more and more. You get this beautiful boost of incrementality when you put a credit card in the person's pocket. And the reason you get the incrementality is you give the person a reason to come back. So you give them some base rewards. Everybody knows it. 5% at the brand, one and a half, two 2% everywhere else. So it's a reason to use the card all the time. And then you make them feel more special, right? We're working with um, our grocery partner on express checkout lanes only for cardholders. Um, ah, nice. I, we have that in our. I, I that, just noticed that. That's a good enough reason. That was for just me. in the past couple months at the Acme in uh, somewhere in New Jersey. I don't know the shop right by me. The lines are always so damn long. Yeah. that I feel like I would definitely get a credit card if I could go so to. So, Dara, I mean, the, the, you open a company. Gosh, in twenty twenty, right at the beginning of you know, a pandemic. But I would think, like, just for me personally, I use my cards much more frequently now than I ever did before. And I'm guessing that's a, a trend. How did, how did how have you seen the business kind of evolve over the past few years? We've just been fortunate over the last few years that customers are coming back to commerce. They're going back into the real world. And brands that we work with, which we call America's Great Brands, really want a way to lock in their customers. All brands that have been around for over 30 years, they're under threat from the e-commerce giants, whether that's Instacart or DoorDash or Amazon, who have a trove of data. You think about Uber. You open the Uber app. Before you open the Uber app, it knows whether you're going to order food or whether you're going to order an, uh, an Uber. And 
all of these uh, incumbents are in trouble because they don't have access to that data. Well, credit cards are a great way to both get your customers to spend more and become more loyal, but also get to know more about your customers and give them reasons to come back. And so when we started the company, we've been riding this wave of all of these great brands that people have tons of affinity for, love the actual experience of going to the hotel or going into the grocery store and giving them the power to lock in their customer better and giving that customer a better deal. And so as we talked about, it should be this um, self-propelling circle of you get a better reward, you want to go back, and the brand gets a stickier customer. There is credit card debt associated with that. You brought it up at the start. But our goal is to be the most trusted experience, right? So there are definitely, credit cards definitely have a bad name in some parts of the economy, particularly with banks. Still, you think? I think it's particularly certain store cards where the banks didn't make it easy for you to pay off, where you get these gotcha bills, you get these junk fees that President Biden's been railing against. That's a terrible experience. If we work with a great brand, we want you to. We know that you trust the brand already, and our job is to engender more trust, not less trust. And so we actually think that if we work with the brand, if we give the customer a better experience, we make it easier to see what your interest is, you never get a gotcha fee, you're much more likely to use the card, you're much more likely to be uh, willing to take credit when you need it and then pay it back when you don't, and you're much more likely to shop with the brand. And so that's part of this cycle of if you do right by the customer, you do right by the brand, you get a, a better outcome for everyone. Does it make a difference to you if we go into a recession or let's qualify that better? Does it, does, how much does it make a difference to you if we go into a recession? It makes a difference to every business if right, we go into course. a recession, yeah. right? Spending goes down. Um, delinquencies naturally go up in a down cycle. Our thing is how do you match risk with reward? Um, we have a, a risk function of 10 or 11 people that focus on a multi-billion dollar book of loans. Their job is to forecast the cycle and keep us safe throughout it. And our job is honestly not to give credit to people who haven't figured out yet how to responsibly use it. Because it's a bad outcome. It's a bad outcome for our company imprint. It's a bad outcome for the brand. And it's a terrible outcome for the consumer. And so not are we only are we trying to protect our balance sheet or our P&L when we underwrite people, we're kind of looking out for them too and also looking out for our brand partners. Are you threatened by... Klarna or what's the other one? Where a you firm. Can, yeah, a firm where you can buy now, pay later. So they're different products that serve different things. And so you think about a Klarna, it's great to buy a Peloton. I turn up, I want this one thing, I want a loan, and I'm going to forget about it and not come back. The hard thing is when you don't have a card, you can't use it every day. The card lets you shop with merchants that you go back to a bunch. It's not just buying a one-time Peloton or a fridge. And it lets you give rewards. You don't get any reward from Klarna. And so the whole purpose of Klarna, if you're a business, is help me with this incremental conversion. Make it easier to press the buy button. Our whole business is, can we bring back the customer more and make them stickier? And so we serve different problems. And a lot of times, our partners have a Klarna uh, installed at the checkout, and it doesn't cannibalize us because mm-hmm. we serve a different thing. How about millennials, Gen Z? How do they engage with just credit cards in general? I, my, my daughter's 26. She's a points maven. I mean, she'll, it's amazing what she does with her points. And so she's technically Gen Z. And if you, okay. listen, if you listen to the media for the last around this for the last 10 years, they would have said, Gen Z doesn't, like, doesn't want credit cards. They're going to not use them. And in reality, what we've seen over the last two or three years is the highest uptake rate of credit cards is Gen Z. You have waves. Like people become consumers. They start to worry about their credit score, and they can't just use buy now, pay later. Uh, and so we've seen an, a real adoption rate by Gen Z and by millennials of credit cards. They're just more thoughtful, to be honest. A lot of people have a hangover of seeing their parents in the, in the global financial crisis dealing with too much debt. Uh, good point. And they're just a lot more thoughtful. They want to do more socially conscious things with their rewards. So one of the things we offer is, yeah, you can earn your points or your cash back that you can use with the brand. You can also donate it. And they really like that. And so we see Gen Z 
using their rewards to make themselves feel better, not just to consume more, and to do things like, I want to give this to the right social cause. There's a real difference between, let's say, older millennials who are buying a home, they have kids, they're budget conscious for the first time. Or the boom- boomers who still carry a wad of cash. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Paul's an old school Wall Street banker, so he's always going to carry a roll of cash in his pocket, but I'll let you in a little secret. He hasn't used any cash no. for two years. All right, Dar, great to get you in here. I want to get you back because we can tell yeah. by your accent that you're from France or something. So <laughs> I want to hear what it's like to start a business, especially in the pandemic, um, and, and scale it at the way you have. So Dar Murphy, great to get you in here. He is the CEO and the founder of Imprint. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little crypto here. We're going to check in with Bloomberg Cross Asset reporter Katie Greifel. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And we also have Bloomberg Intelligence senior macro strategist Mike McGlone. He's manning the Bloomberg Intelligence Miami uh, outpost. Uh, Mike, hopefully the the work is not too hard down there for you here in this February day. But talk to us about crypto. I blinked, and this thing is back. Bitcoin's back above 24,000. Give us your macro call here as you talk to clients. Well, the fastest horse in the race has bounced the most this year, and I think bounce is the key word, Paul, because it looks to me more at risk of a bear market rally than the beginning of something new and enduring. So here's the significance of cryptos. They're facing their first potential U.S. recession, and Bitcoin has never, the 50-week moving average technically has never dropped below the 200-week moving average, which it has done. So it's somewhat, and that all happens around 25,000. So the market's bumped up to a very good level, and I look at it as, yes, I think in the big picture, this is a very good bull market. Market, but I think what's happening in the, around these levels, we're seeing more of the responsive sellers. Okay, great. I'm bullish, but at these levels, you got to prove it. Katie, what do you think about, uh, you know, as we see regulators crack down, the SEC sending out Wells notices, um, settling with Kraken on the securitization of Ethereum, which was like, I mean, Ethereum staking, that was mm-hmm. part of the great hope of the future of crypto, right? Yeah, I know. Um, why are we still seeing these gains? You know, it's a good question. I have something very scary to tell you about, mm. though. A death cross. It could be oh approaching God. when it comes to Bitcoin. Uh, Matt Maley, he pointed this out in a note. I think it was yesterday. He was looking at Bitcoin's 50-week moving average uh it touched the 200 week moving average when that happens apparently it's very 200, scaly 200 day or he's looking at weeks specifically weeks. Oh, typically okay. it's uh the daily moving average but he's looking at the uh the moving averages when it comes to the weeks uh but in any case that has never happened before and i don't know the name implies that that could be bad i'd be curious to hear mike's thoughts on it 
Yeah, well, that's... Is that's, a death cross bad, Mike? <laughs> uh, well, that's the thing. But the, the key thing I learned as a trader is once it hits the popular press like us, then you want to do the opposite. But the key thing, point, uh, Katie pointed out, it is the weekly. So it's a significant rollover. Everything is kind of tilting down in cryptos, and they bounced up to very good levels. The key thing I look at is what was the major force that pressured almost all risk assets, most notably cryptos, last year? And that was expectations for Fed rate hikes. And that's still there. The don't fight the Fed mantra is still there. So I see the risk is now that the stock market's rolling over, cryptos are rolling over. But you can see what's going to happen in the long term when this whole thing bottoms is crypto should come out ahead. The key thing is right now is we're still fighting the Fed and markets have bounced. And my bias is the macro in terms of the macro is the stock market lows probably not in. It typically goes down a lot more in a recession, that which means more pressure for cryptos, most notably Bitcoin. I just- I just want to know how these prices are going up. Like, Katie, you talk to investors all morning long, right? Mm-hmm. Vildana sits right behind you. Oh, yeah. She talks to investors constantly. Mike, I'm sure that you, you know, probably go to lunch or some steakhouse with a bunch of investors at least once a week. Have Has either one of you talked to anyone who's bought Bitcoin? I haven't, you know, you know, I'm obsessed with cash right now. So that's like the spiritual opposite (laughs) of Bitcoin, I would say. But it is interesting for a while. It felt like you could just like neatly put the macro conversation on Bitcoin. Stocks are rallying. So, of course, Bitcoin is rallying, too. It feels like it's almost broken away from that. And I don't have a good narrative right now for why it's rallying the way it is. I mean, I'm sure some of that just comes down to really poor liquidity and you can really push it around. Mike, Katie wrote a great story the other day about how cash is basically yielding 5%. What's the yield on Bitcoin? Well, exactly. I, Matt, I agree with you. To me, this is a boomer dream. When you can go clunk into a two-year note and get an over 9% for two years, you say, thank you very much. I haven't been able to do that for a decade. But I did get a call from one of the smartest people I know in the business, a big arbitrage hedge fund last, last in December. And the minute he said to me, Mike, what's this GBTC thing? Mm-hmm. I knew that was a bottom because the, 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 the discount got so extreme. And this is a distressed, distressed debt person. So to me, this is a beer market you should explain bond. to everyone else uh, are, what well, GBTC, GBTC is. GBTC is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It's the most widely tracked Bitcoin um, exchange-traded product. It's not an ETF, but it's a trust. It would and love it, to it, be an ETF. It sure as hell isn't an ETF. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, but it got to extreme discount and had you know hit the stops, and it's up what, 50% this, 63% of, it's like 44% this year. Now, that's a bear bear market rally, but it just got too cheap on a discounted, you know, discount to premium basis. So I look at it as, okay, market got way oversold, it's bounced, but we still face those significant headwinds that, yes, in the big picture, I think Bitcoin's going to go, continue to go up a lot more, like most assets. But right now, what are we looking at from the Fed? They are still tightening, stock market's rolling over, and we're potentially heading towards a recession. These are bad for risk assets in Bitcoin's one of the riskiest. You just rolled in an incredibly bearish call in about three seconds there. Well, it's the key fact that I really have to point out is Bitcoin is the leading indicator. If it sustains above this 25,000 level, that means a lot for everything. And I look at it as an ex-trader, and you say to yourself, okay, prove it. I'll structure a put position here and make you prove it. And if it does work, then we'll get into the longer-term trading. So remember the old thing on Wall Street, people would say, oh, I'm bullish. And the boss would say, okay, well, uh, sell 1,000. What do you mean I'm bullish? And you say, well, sell 1,000. We'll see what happens. The market doesn't go down. Okay, we'll buy 10,000. <laughs> Wait, he, he just said uh, GBTC isn't an ETF yet, Katie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say if I told you I haven't seen Evil Dead 2 yet? <laughs> <laughs> that implies that you're going to in the future, which, Mike, you're implying this will become an ETF in the future. Have you ever heard of Gary Gensler? 
terribly I, I unlikely, Mike. Well, but I think that's what's happening. So we launched the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index almost five years ago with the main thought is this space needs to track an index, an ETF to track an index like the S&P 500. I think if you're going to protect investors, that's where it's going to go. I think right now, typically it isn't. We're in pretty extreme regulation mode, and a lot of firms in the U.S. are, are not, they're leaving the U.S. or trying to you know, avoid the regulation. But to me, to protect investors and not pick winners, that's where we're eventually going to go. It's just going to take a while. So, Mike, you're down in Miami, the self-proclaimed capital, Bitcoin capital or crypto capital of the U.S., the, I guess the Austin, Texas or the you know something like that, trying to be cool. What's the mood down there of the folks that have come down there and really planted their flag in this crypto space? I was at a conference in the f- uh, December, right near the lows, and it was packed. And Mayor Suarez spoke, and the people there were all focused on the macro big picture and seemed quite positive. The problem is some of the retail people got hurt from FTX. That that really is sad. I mean, they they haven't been able. They have they put their trust with an exchange that was not a good fiduciary, and they weren't able to do it through an ETF or something. So to me, that's scary. But overall, the mood is still quite positive in the big picture. And you look at Bitcoin, it looks like it's potentially bottom, but it's at 24,000 right now. The last time it put a significant low around 18 or 19 in 2018-19, it bottomed around three to 4,000. So it's still, <laughs> look at the big picture. Yep, 50% from its lows. Uh, I know. So, you know, that's pretty good. If it's, you bought something, it's up 50% from its I mean, its you think lows. about it, an asset class, a major exchange goes belly up potential for fraud. We'll find out. And yet, the, the underlying securities... Wait, you think some fraud may have been committed in know. the crypto industry? Possibly. Well, we'll have we that, can't say for certain. We can't. We'll have that trial to figure it all out. But uh, interesting to see that uh, asset still trading well. All right. Good stuff. Mike McGlone, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. He's down in our Miami outpost, uh, manning all things crypto from down there. And Katie Greifeld, cross-asset reporter. One of the big winners in the stock market today is Deer and Company. Stock's up 6% on the back of some good, good numbers. Let's break it all down with Chris Cialino. He's an equity research analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Chris, when I, when I think of Deer, I think of the American farmer. So can I surmise that the American farmer's doing pretty well these days? They sure are, and we're not really seeing much signs of a slowdown either. Um, you know, it was a, r- a real solid uh, beat and raise quarter. Um, pricing continues to be uh, unbelievably strong, up double digits again. Uh, and we also saw higher production, particularly in the, the large ag business and construction, as some of these um, supply constraints are beginning to show, you know, real tangible evidence of easing. Uh, and the demand for farm equipment Again, remarkably strong with no signs of slowing. Orders are essentially filled out into 4Q, and for some products, we're booked for the entire year. Um, so uh, this is going to even spill over into 2024 because inventories are quite lean. So it, th- there's certainly legs to the cycle. You know, I'm, uh, next week I'm going to go down to the Ducati dealership in Soho and talk to the North American CEO of that business. Nice. They have a similar issue. So if you want um, like a Ducati Multistrada, you're probably going to wait until the end of the year before they can fill your order. They're all sold out already. Okay. Pretty much everything they make. And um, But the thing is, I wonder about new buyers who may have to finance. Maybe with Ducati, it's a little different because it's kind of a wealthier person's product and it's a toy they could buy it in cash if finance costs are too high but what's the deal with financing chris you know a tractor or a plow or something that you get from deer because i imagine rates are around seven percent um do 
farmers just pay cash? Are the buyers all institutional? How's that work out? You know, it's kind of a tale of two farmers um, on the small end of the spectrum and, and the small uh, local farmers. Un- no doubt that is having a, a material impact, and that's the one area of the business where you're starting to see a slowdown. Um, when it comes to your large professional farmers who made record profits last year, yes, they are using cash, um, and, and yes, they could weather these little bit higher rates. Um, so it, as you look at the, the large corporate you know, professional farmers, uh, it, it tends to have less of an impact. Um, but you know, we're coming off uh, record profitability last year, Farm income is going to be down this year, but still it would be above any prior peak cycle. So farmers are still in a healthy financial position. How is the family farm in America, Chris? I mean, um, what's the split, you know, big institutional uh, corporate farms to family farms? What's it look like right now? Yeah, it's something similar to, you know, it's like 20 percent of uh um, farms are, you know, corporate owned, but account for nearly like 80% of our production, something in that ballpark. So when you think about the, uh, early, the old 80-20 split, yeah, there's a name for really that. The large professional farmers that, that move the needle, the small ag business is important and, and it's somewhat split between um, like ag production systems and hay and forage. And then they have the, you know, the traditional kind of turf and utility business that caters more toward your consumer oriented products. And that's where the biggest weakness is within their portfolio. But really, that's it. I mean, construction strong, large ag very strong. That is uh, referred to as the Pareto principle. The Pareto principle. Right? So it's the same in a lot of different things. You could say, for example, 20% of the people have 80% of the wealth. Yep. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So, all right, Chris, so if if I'm a you know family farmer in uh, western Jersey, and that can happen because we are the Garden State, and I want to go and i got to buy a couple plows, a couple big tractors for my farm, can I haggle with the salesperson? Because I can't haggle with the car, the car salesman anymore. Not this year. Um, <laughs> there's just no inventory out there. So pricing has just been remarkably strong. Pricing in their large ag business was up 22% in the first quarter here, which is phenomenal. We've never seen anything like that before. Um, and the, uh, the problem, too, also, if you try to find a used piece of equipment, used prices are near record levels. There's just no inventory in the channel, uh, partly due to the, the supply chain, and then just partly we've been underproducing for the past few years. Um, this is going to be another year in 2023 where demand outstrips supply. So uh, pricing, while it will moderate as we progress through the year, um, we still expect it to remain quite strong, and, and from a price-cost perspective, um, will be uh, a significant margin tailwind for deer. Who is the big – I remember when uh, my buddy Adam Johnson needed to buy a tractor for his farm upstate. He I was going to say he lives in Manhattan. What's yeah, no, that? but he, I think he <laughs> wanted to get like a Mahindra. Who are the big competitors to John Deere? If you think about the large ag business in North America – it's really a duopoly with Deere and C&H Industrial, the, uh-huh. the case brand. Um, Agco is another big player who, who's made some pretty significant strides to get into some larger equipment. And then you also have Kubota, which tends to be more on kind of the small mid-horsepower. But if you're talking large, high-horsepower equipment, it's really Deere and case. Lamborghini. 
What? Lamborghini was a tractor brand to start with. You was know? it really? Yeah. Uh, what's his name? Ferruccio Lamborghini. He was rich from his tractor business, okay. and he loved Ferrari's cars, but he thought Enzo's clutches were crap. And uh, he that's found right. out okay. it was the same clutch that he used in his tractor, so he said, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to build my own. There you go. Good story. I have heard that before from Matt Miller. Um, so, Chris, let's, let's switch gears since, I'm gonna, since we got on the phone. Another one of my favorite companies that you cover, Caterpillar. Now, Caterpillar is not tied to the farmer as much as obviously deer, and I'm, I'm guessing there's some recession risk in a name like that. What's the call on Caterpillar here? You know what there is, and you know it's somewhat similar if you think about it. The, the weakness is really kind of isolated right now more in their residential construction exposure, which really is quite small. Uh, if you think about their construction business, 75% of that is non-resi, um, and, and they're significant tailwinds there with the government investments, whether it be the infrastructure, uh, that's the right. IRA, uh, CHIPS Act. I mean, we've got billions and billions of dollars that are going to start flowing through the system. We're only seeing that begin to hit the backlog now. So we think that's a significant tailwind in the, over the next two or three years. You also have um, mining equipment continues to be um, historically old age of the fleet. We, we have a replacement cycle there that's unfolding. And, you know, we're still seeing pretty good investments when it comes to, to energy um, and commodity-related uh, products. So there's certainly some uh, favorable macro tailwinds, notwithstanding some of the, the uh, slower residential spending. You know why I brought up Lamborghini? Why? Because you uh, like talking cars. No, because Chris was saying CNH Industrial is the yep. big competitor to Deer. And, Chris, you know who owns CNH Industrial? Fiat. Ah. Which also owns Ferrari. Or a sizable stake in Ferrari. That's, I think, really fascinating that those two that supercar is. makers have... So I just clicked in CNH for the Timble symbol, and it says uh, acquired by Fiat. I am on 9-30-2013. Yeah. So, and, and by the way, if you've seen, you know, Top Gear, uh, yep. Jeremy Clarkson, yep. he has a new show where he buys a farm and tries to run it. He gets a big Lamborghini tractor because he likes the brand name, and then he finds out it's too large to fit in his barn. Oh, uh, tough problems there. Hey, Chris, so uh, China reopening, what does that mean for your big industrial companies, whether it's a, a cat or a deer or some of the other big industrial companies that you cover? Yeah, with the, with the China reopening, I think um, as it relates to deer, I, I think this is another tailwind for them now. You know, they don't sell a lot of equipment directly into China. Just the, the farms over there aren't conducive to a lot of these larger equipment. But why I do think it helps is, you know, global crop supplies are historically tight, largely due to the to the war in Ukraine and, and the restriction of shipments and fertilizer coming out of that market. But now you throw on the China reopening, um, it grain supplies are going to remain historically tight. So we think this keeps crop prices elevated for the next couple of years and really gives additional legs to the cycle. So we see China reopening as a tailwind there. As you think about CAD, you know, China's only roughly 5% of their sales, uh, but the largest equipment market mm. in the world. Any kind of reopening infrastructure investments over there uh, certainly would add some upside. Well, and if they let the ethanol... Um, proportion of gasoline rise up to 15%, that's going to be another tailwind, right, for corn prices. 
Yeah, we're we're looking at kind of a I think a structural deficit um, when it comes to uh, crop supply demand. So, uh, barring some kind of unforeseen weather events, and um, you know, we're still going to look at you know historically tight supplies here probably for the next several years. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, if farmers continue to make money, they they tend to reinvest in equipment. Where are you, where are you based, Chris? You're you're down in Princeton. Princeton, New Jersey. Yeah, baby. Uh, Which itself say, is a very nice little farm area. I was going to say, if you're in the Midwest, you don't want to miss the Millersport Corn Festival. Millersport. The Millersport, sure. Ohio. Oh, of course. Best corn festival in the country. Really? The most delicious right. corn in and America. And when is that? July? I imagine it's in the fall at some oh, point. All right. right around right around Oktoberfest. All right, Chris, great stuff. Chris Chilino, Equity Research Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.